Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Outrage and Optimism. Tom here. I just wanted to take a word at the top of the episode to let you know that today, the episode we are bringing you is the second in the special series on the future of transport. Attentive listeners will remember that about four weeks ago, we brought you the first in the series, which was an investigation into the future of aviation. And today we've moved on to the future of fuels. This is a great episode. It's different to our normal conversations. We have lots of different guests. We have conversations. We take you on a journey to explore what the future of fuels will be. We tell amazing stories about how the world we are trying to create is emerging all around us and how exciting this future is going to be. We're grateful to our sponsor, Neste, for having made this podcast possible and to all of the guests for participating and to you for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the episode. and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivitkanu. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, in a break from our normal format, we bring you the second in a special series of episodes looking at the future of sustainable transport. In a year when across the globe cities fell silent, cars stood stationary and oil prices crashed, we'll be looking at how emerging energy sources will shape the kind of vehicles we'll drive in the years to come. There's no denying that for over a century, fossil fuels have played a key role in humanity's progress, but at a cost. They account for more than two-thirds of greenhouse gas emissions and the pollution from burning them kills more than four million people a year. So in keeping with this podcast mission to balance both outrage and optimism, we'll be bringing you plenty of both. We'd all been born into a world where we sat in traffic jams with thousands of engines going, boom, 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 pumping out toxic carcinogenic gas, you know, and it was like, that's normal. There is so much outrage out there when you really look at what pollution does to people. In particular, I think the symbol of that outrage, at least in my case, is the tailpipe. And I thought at the time, Formula One has got a problem. And I thought at the time, we should create a green version of the sport. We should, we should move in that direction. What's clear is the internal combustion engine for ground transport is dead. Dead, 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 dead. Now, even though the coronavirus pandemic is expected to result in a record 7% decline in energy-related greenhouse gas emissions this year, the International Energy Agency has warned against complacency. Because the road to a decarbonised transport sector is indeed long and winding, and without the ambition, commitment and stubborn optimism of people like the ones you're about to hear from, global emissions could still continue to rise to a point where there's no going back. That's on this episode of outrage and optimism. This episode is brought to you thanks to the support of our sponsor, Neste. Neste is in the business of fighting climate change by producing renewable fuels and circular solutions. Originally a local oil company from Finland, Neste has transformed into a leader in the field of renewable diesel and jet fuel from refined waste products, which offer an immediate solution to cutting the global carbon emissions of road and air transport. 
So one of the interesting things about the last five years since Paris has been the driving down of costs of renewable energy. And I think all of us have kind of witnessed that. And we've been amazed at the fact that really today it is cheaper to generate solar and wind than really any other form of electricity. And I think most people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with that fact. But probably what people are less familiar with and what I myself was certainly less familiar with is the fact that transport is also transforming at an equally rapid pace to the point where decarbonised transport systems are going to become the norm within just a few years. Where are you guys on this issue? Have been tracking this as closely as you have the decarbonisation of power? I'm actually so excited about this. I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm very excited because, um, well, I think most of you know that I have been lobbying for the museum to the internal combustion engine to be built in uh, Britain. And I would like to volunteer myself to be there at the opening of that <laughs> museum. Um, honestly, right? We, If you think about the fact that we have had this internal combustion engine for, let's call it 100 years, and very little improvement of technology since then, how completely, as my daughters would say, five minutes ago, <laughs> the fact that we're still using these vehicles with that completely outmoded, outdated, antiquated technology. Um, and it's about time. It's about time to have a revolution in the technology that powers our transport. I mean, it's, it is it is important, isn't it, to sort of sit back and realise the pace of change? Because living through these days, it can be difficult to realise just how quickly things are transforming. I mean, I remember even back in 2015, the idea of mass adoption of electric vehicles seemed, you know, decades away, potentially, and hydrogen the same. And those things have really just been accelerated so much in the last few years. I mean, just a few data points. Tesla is now the most valuable car company in the world. Wow. Who would have thought that a new entrant to the car market could become the most valuable car company in such a short space of time? At the same time, we've seen the last few weeks, ExxonMobil ejected from the Dow Jones Index, having been a member since the 1920s, because they've now been surpassed by so many other different entities that are focusing on the future. It's really, and hydrogen, I mean, hydrogen is really capturing my attention at the moment, the degree to which both shipping and heavy trucking are going to be transformed remarkably to this this way of powering vehicles that releases water vapour from the tailpipe. It's really amazing how quickly things are changing. It's a huge source of optimism and hope for me. It is just so exciting how the barriers, the mental barriers that we had given ourselves are just giving way to technological innovation and investment. And it's the power of these commitments, these uh, these announcements about, you know, the phasing out of, of internal combustion engines. It's a kind of future truth. It pulls the future into the present and changes the way we manufacture and produce things now. Uh, and we get there, you know, with, with, a, with a focus on a target, a clear head and logic. Now, now, what's amazing about all of this, of course, is the economics. And we've seen this is when things really change, right? When the economics and public perception and public policy all align to move in the same direction. The economics is moving in the direction we want it to. National commitments are also really accelerating. We've seen accelerated commitments on the phasing out of petrol and diesel cars from France, Germany, Norway. The UK recently came out and said 2030. Big commitments from China, Japan and South Korea. And of course, also, who could forget the fact that now the US is back in the game. 
Nobody's going to build another coal-fired plant in America. No one's going to build another oil-fired plant in America. They're going to move to renewable energy, number one. Number two, we're going to make sure that we are able to take the federal fleet and turn it into a fleet that's electric vehicles, making sure that we can do that. We're going to put 500,000 charging stations and all of the highways that we're going to be building in the future. To me, that's the the signal there coming from the president-elect of the United States will set the tone. And we've seen this before, right? When a national leader of that level of authority comes out and sends such a clear message around where they want to go, smart companies will invest and they'll innovate in response to that demand. And I think I would say already, even before he's taken office, that will have an impact on the strategy of the companies that can shape the future. So it's just such a fascinating issue, this. I mean, how transport is going to be transformed will be fundamental to the whole future that we've been trying to create and that we keep talking about as within our grasp in this podcast. This is going to be an amazing episode. And who better to lead you through it than Mm. Paul Dickinson? Here's Paul. He's going to take you on this journey. And we'll see you back here at the end. Sorry, it's the Paul Dickinson. It's the Paul. Thank you, Christiana. I do appreciate it. No, it's fine, Tom. You got it wrong. But thank you, Christiana, for the correct time. It's just, just for the listeners, really. We start our journey in the US, in particular in one state which for decades has been ahead of the federal government in terms of ambitious climate policy, and it's the birthplace of the EV, or electric vehicle technology, and which this year witnessed firsthand the utterly devastating consequences that climate change can bring to bear. Well, dozens of wildfires are burning up and down the West Coast. I'm sure you've seen some of the pictures. It's just harrowing. At least 25 ravaging parts of California, north and south. Extreme heat and strong winds continue to fuel them. At least 2.2 million acres. So many homes have burned across the state. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced and 4 million acres of land was lost when wildfires burned through California earlier this year. And whereas President Trump famously dismissed the connection to climate change... It'll start getting cooler. (laughs) I wish... You just watch. Scientists and experts were in no doubt about the real cause. The fires are made worse as a result of the damage that's been caused by global warming. Early on, the droughts that uh, led to the bark beetles that killed so many trees that are still dying or dead in the forests and therefore became more vulnerable to fire and then uh, later to the hotter temperatures, which in turn bring the winds that move the fires further faster and make them so much more devastating. That's clean air crusader and Trump nemesis Mary Nichols. She's chair of the California Air Resources Board. And in the aftermath of the fires, she worked with California Governor Gavin Newsom to order the ban on the sale of all non-zero emission passenger vehicles in California after 2035. He was horrified. This this past uh, several months have been the worst ever in California's history. He was feeling, I think, the... <laughs> very strongly that he had to do more. He had to do something uh, re- uh, that was reactive. And, and so he's done two important things. Um, one is the, uh, is the mandate for zero emission vehicles. And the other, which came a couple of weeks later, which was a mandate to improve our forest and land management uh, to make them more um, capable of, uh, of absorbing and holding uh, carbon. So this is... Uh, 
it's, it's definitely uh, driven by the recognition of how horrible the fires are. He knows perfectly well that we're not going to uh, replace all of our internal combustion engines uh, quickly enough uh, to make any immediate difference in the fire situation. But he also knows that if we don't start now, we won't get there. And we have already seen a couple of other states that have stepped up and said they're they're going to follow California in this regard. So it's uh, very much uh, seen as being a part of our climate uh, program. We spoke to Mary when the results of the presidential election had not yet been confirmed, but we asked her what difference the Joe Biden administration would really make. I believe that uh, Joe Biden will direct his administration to take actions that can be taken under existing legal authority, Uh, that he will work with uh, the Congress to try to get funding and uh, and support and uh, legislation where he can to drive in the direction of um, using federal funds for an economic stimulus package, which will include some substantial incentives for clean energy and clean transportation. There's a lot of consensus from uh, regions around the country, cities and states, saying uh, they want to participate in the transformation of our of our uh, system of transportation. They want to um, be uh, part of a of a national program, and they're willing to do their part in terms of investing uh, local funds and putting their land use authorities uh, and other uh, other authorities behind the. Uh, creation of a network of charging stations for electric vehicles so that this transformation, which I think most people, including uh, CEOs of oil companies, believe is underway. So the fundamental question of uh, whether we will be moving beyond uh, petroleum, I think has, has been settled. And Mary's response to potentially being Joe Biden's pick to head up the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency? We don't have time, you know, to wait around and be modest. Um, so I'm planning. I, I have uh, made it clear when people have put my name forward to say, I'm willing to serve in any way I can. The situation is desperate. The situation is desperate. Hmm. So watch this space. But although Mary says we can and should be imagining a world beyond petroleum, fossil fuels still account for 80% of the world's energy and subsidies remain a significant barrier to global decarbonisation. Now, a study by the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, showed that without those subsidies, you could have reduced global carbon emissions by nearly 30% today. A controversial topic worthy of its own deep dig, and we'll be doing just that in a future program down the line. But just to say, Joe Biden has pledged to work towards a worldwide ban on fossil fuel subsidies. But can we end our oil addiction quickly enough to affect meaningful change? Yes, absolutely we can. It's a mistake to look at uh, what we've scaled so far because the leading variable is actually cost. That's energy analyst Ramez Nam. The main thing we've accomplished with renewable energy and electric mobility is we've stunningly lowered their costs. From when Germany started the energy vendor to today, the cost of electricity from solar power has dropped by a factor of 30. The cost of electricity from wind power has dropped by a factor of 10. And that is what is disruptive to fossil fuels. I don't think the German people or politicians appreciated that at the time. They thought that they were deploying clean energy to clean up their own emissions. 
which is a noble goal. But the major effect was that by scaling the technologies, solar and wind, and Norway doing similar things with electric vehicles, for instance, it made the technologies get cheaper. But of course, building the energy storage facilities is still a key factor. Can it be done? It can. I mean, we have many options for how to decarbonize the grid. And in fact, storage is a solution, but the the underlying issue is how do we balance intermittent and seasonal resources. And it turns out there's actually three or four different ways that you can you can go. Number one is we should build bigger grids. Every model, academics do this all the time, of how to get to the highest usage of solar and wind at the lowest cost, and the lowest cost electricity system is build continent-sized grids. So then in Europe, where you are, you can bring in uh, solar from Spain, Italy, Turkey even, wind from the North Sea, the Nordics, the UK, and integrate them together and integrate over seasons. And then two, very, very exciting, wind power, both at sea, but also on land, what we're doing, to make the turbines bigger, they just operate more steadily. They're more reliable, and they need less storage. And then three, finally, you have to do something on storage. And that's the one of the biggest challenges now. Multi-hour storage, we're on a path to having that relatively licked for four hours, maybe even eight hours. But while this is all very well and good for the developed world, what about the approximately 800 million people still living without electricity? Can renewables be scaled to eventually meet their energy demands? The most important thing that developed nations can do uh, is to make clean energy options, clean electricity, clean mobility, clean industry, clean manufacturing, the cheapest and best options. So that when people, and whether it's China, India, Bangladesh, Congo, go to choose their energy source, their heating source, their mobility source, they just automatically choose the one that's clean because it's the cheapest and the best. And so where does that ultimately leave the fossil fuel companies? In Europe, you have Orsted, formerly Dong Energy, Danish oil and natural gas. That's the lesson for energy companies. Dong, now Orsted, was an oil and natural gas company. But they had to look and say, what's coming in the future? What technology is actually going to work the best? What does the world need? What is the world going to choose for policy reasons, for, for our own reasons, to have you know forests that survive, to have seas that we have fish in, you know, a world that we want to live in, we're going to choose cleaner things. And so you have to ask yourself, if you're the executive, am I the CEO of an oil and gas company? Or am I the CEO of an energy company? Because the first one is doomed. The second one, there's massive growth for it. The world's going to use much more energy in 2015 than it is today, but it's going to be clean energy. And given Ramez is also a published science fiction writer, I asked him to gaze into the not-so-distant future. I mean, I think 20 years from now, we're going to be thinking of transport as a service, something that you access, much more than we think about car ownership. But in the future, it's going to be much more like, uh, you know, hailing a ride. You're going to step outside, you're going to use an app, a vehicle is going to pull up to pick you up, it's going to be autonomous, there's going to be nobody in it. It's going to be electric, because that's the cheapest cost per kilometer or per mile, and it's going to be right-sized for your needs. On a you know short uh, cross-city uh, trip, it's going to be a tiny little pod, uh, one-seater, two-seater. The inside is going to be a giant surface for entertainment, if you want it to be, where you'll have your, your 
tablet or laptop or VR glasses or whatever you have in the future. And you're going to you know, disappear into your own world if you want to while you travel. Or if you're moving your family, you're going to summon a somewhat larger vehicle. It's going to have the capacity to move you where you want to go. And I think that's what's gonna, what it's going to be. Look, none of this is happening as fast as we want. We need to use more policy uh, to scale all of these solutions on electricity and on transport and on industry even faster. But it's happening a lot faster than people in industry, especially in the fossil fuel industry or the automotive industry, think it's going to happen. And what's clear is the internal combustion engine for ground transport is dead. Dead, 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 dead. Someone who would agree with Ramez that we can't take our foot off the accelerator on this is Monica Areia. I'm actually here to share good news. For the first time in our lifetimes, a big detox of transportation is possible, despite the many problems we have, or perhaps because of them. That's Monica giving a recent TED Talk. She works with leaders in government, business, philanthropy, and activism to help make that all-important shift towards emissions-free transportation. And she's also the transport lead for the Climate Champions team gearing up for next year's COP26. There is so much outrage out there when you really look at what pollution does to people. And in particular, I think the symbol of that outrage, at least in my case, is the tailpipe. I think they really symbolize something that we are going to have to let go of. 2020 in particular, tragic as it has been, is also a year where we start that new journey. One of the key drivers has five letters and it's called China. China entered electric mobility in a big way because of an industrial uh, a strategy, you know, it was not mobility per se. They they wanted to do something with that sector. Analysts have admitted that they never saw electric buses uh, moving at the pace they are moving right now. They 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 never expected the electrification of buses to go at the pace that we have seen in places like Shenzhen in China, where you you have entire fleets of seventeen thousand electric buses running in one city. So so there is that. Then, of course, there is policy in place that has explained a lot of the electrification in, in Europe. And you see the impact of regulations and you see the impact also of activism and you see the impact of innovations. Hmm. But how do we ensure this transition is inclusive and isn't going to lock more people out of personal mobility? It's very important to put inequality in the conversation right at the beginning. If you look at California, there are low-income communities that are really hit by diesel truck pollution. So one of the things we're going to have to do in telling the story of electrification, in bringing others on board, is to say this is not about my Tesla is bigger than your Tesla. That's, that's not where we're going, my friends. It's about looking for the opportunities that can help us decrease emissions, that can help us increase our health and well-being, and can help us deal with this horrific inequality problem we have that is unacceptable and is outrageous. So California set a precedent for the world this year by saying 
we are going to accelerate the transition to zero emission trucks. What is really important to say is that that, that battle wouldn't have been won with, without the frontline communities. Many of them are communities that are not only hurt by social problems, but also by problems associated with um, racism and a lot of other systemic issues. But my point is, if you look at buses, buses, for me, coming from Latin America, electric buses, yes, are of course about climate and health, but it's about dignity. They are clean, they are beautiful, they are silent. And if you want to talk about happiness, ask the drivers, the drivers of the buses or the drivers of a truck because they have to get out and they don't have the tailpipe when they have to do the deliveries. So I'm very uh, aware that it can that electrification can come across as for the wealthy because probably because of Tesla. And at the same time, I am aware that for cer- certain segments, that is the story. But let's try to see the ways in which we can tackle the inequality and the pollution problem through electrification, because I actually think there is a space for a big win-win there. And now, someone who is way out ahead on the technology. Craig Knight, CEO of Heisen Motors. That's a startup supplying hydrogen fuel cell-powered commercial vehicles, including heavy-duty trucks, buses, and coaches. The fuel cell is essentially an engine replacement using this static electrochemical technology to convert hydrogen into electricity. So a fuel cell vehicle is a fuel cell electric vehicle. Craig has been working in this space for 20 years, and he laid out his vision for Heisen Motors with Tom and Christiana. Our mission is essentially to you know, accelerate the energy transition from, from fossil fuels to hydrogen in mobility applications. Hmm. If we think about those applications, frankly, 10 or 15 years ago, fuel cell technology wasn't ready for the challenge. However, in recent years, there have been a lot of technological advances, not only you know, within our group, but also in the industry as a whole. For on-road trucking, hydrogen really poses a very uh, unique proposition in, in transitioning off fossil fuels because of the ability of the fuel cell technology to provide performance which matches diesel trucks, firstly. And it doesn't bring compromise, the kind of compromises that you have if you go off fossil fuels onto a battery electric truck. Now, um, ultimately, the purpose here, Craig, is to eliminate fossil fuels as being the fuels of heavy transport, whether land or maritime. However, 98% of the hydrogen produced today is still being produced from natural gas. So how optimistic are you that we will be able to move over to green hydrogen produced from renewables, produced from waste in a way that uh, will meet the time frame of the energy transition. So most hydrogen in the world today comes from natural gas and is produced at the point where it's going to be consumed or very close to it and delivered via pipeline. But it's not easy to find in a, in a pure form. It, it always tends to combine with something. So there is a there is work to be done to isolate hydrogen and make it useful for mobility applications. And obviously the very um, 
green and, and, and attractive way to make hydrogen is electrolysis using renewable energy because then there is, there's no carbon used in the, uh, there's no carbon generated in the process of generating the electricity. So because hydrogen is difficult and somewhat expensive to move over long distances, we're strong believers in the concept of local hydrogen production for local consumption. And this is then all about a local sustainable ecosystem, creating local jobs and, and having very strong energy independence and energy resilience at a local level. Craig, I, I love that answer. That was so, that's so great to hear about that sort of local network of ecosystems. I've just got one more question. I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about the relative costs of getting a hydrogen truck on the road and operating it today compared to a diesel truck and when you think we'll get to the point that it will be more cost efficient to run a hydrogen fleet than a diesel fleet. So it's our goal in the next two to three years in as many jurisdictions as possible for Heiser Motors to be able to supply vehicles operating on a zero emission, zero compromise basis for governments and corporations to transition from fossil fuels, to be able to do this with a total cost of ownership at parity with what they're accustomed to on their diesel fleets today. Wow. So what we need for that is a few things. We need the, the time and scale effect of the ongoing innovation and ramping up of production around the fuel cells and the, the supporting systems that go into a vehicle. The next extremely important factor is the cost of the hydrogen itself. And that's where some of those um, supporting developments around hydrogen production technologies and we believe local hydrogen generation systems, we believe that's where they dramatically underscore the cost structure opportunity so, so that customers, fleet operators can choose to move to a zero emission fleet with no penalty on the cost and with absolutely no compromise on how the fleet operates. That's our goal. And we're, we're enabled somewhat by the lower cost maintenance associated with electrical vehicle systems in general compared to mechanical systems. Also, in terms of breakdowns and, and unplanned time off the road, it becomes virtually non-existent because the systems are a lot smarter, they communicate a lot, and you can see what's happening within all the modules within a fuel cell vehicle remotely. So you can be proactively you know, addressing anything that looks like it could be causing a concern. You might be having a little bit of overheating somewhere or you might have, you know, some, some issue with the airflow, uh, air intake, something like that. You can see that with remote data. So, so hold on. So if I have a fleet of 100 or 500 hydrogen-powered vehicles in my company, then I would literally have in my maintenance shop, I would have a huge screen yep. That tells yeah. me, gives me all the information of every single one of those vehicles. Yeah. Wow. Like you can set up algorithms so that, so that you know immediately when there's anything that doesn't quite look right and then you schedule this vehicle to come in. And, for example, say you've identified that there's a problem with the air intake because there's just not enough air coming into that stack and you're seeing it constrained. Well, when the truck pulls in, one of the mechanics already has mm -hmm. the, the air blower module the truck pulls in, you change the air blower module, you do a quick test and you send the truck back out. There is no set of hours or days off the road waiting for your spare parts to come in to fix whatever was wrong after the funny noise reported by the driver. None of that happens. Okay, 
So it's the kind of time and cost savings Craig was talking about that will help drive companies to make the transition to fleet electrification. And that's where people like Sarah Forney play a key role. She's the senior manager of clean vehicles at sustainability nonprofit Sarah's. And through their corporate electric vehicle alliance, they're supporting companies looking to swap the pump for the plug. We represent various different industries across the U.S. economy, including telecommunications, e-commerce, shipping, electric power, big box retailers. And together, our members are really eager to drive change. So they're really looking to send a strong demand signal to the market and also advocate for policies that make the EV transition not only possible, but also profitable, since they are extremely eager to adopt EVs for various different reasons. And really, you know, there is a strong business case there already, but they want to make it even stronger. And that's why we developed SEBA to really accelerate the deployment of EVs through corporate fleets, but then also enable more consumers to purchase EVs at lower prices as well. You know, companies and consumers are increasingly seeing that there's a lot of benefits associated with EVs. Um, you know, it's not just environmental environmental benefits. EVs are also offering significant fuel and maintenance cost savings. In fact, just for a small compact vehicle, you can see upwards of um, $1,000 per year in savings just on fuel costs alone. So if you imagine a corporate fleet that's, you know, racking up a lot of mileage and spending a ton of money on petroleum over the years, they're going to see a significant amount of savings if they switch over to EVs in terms of their operational costs. And then on top of that, you know, companies are also eager to set more ambitious sustainability goals in general. And they know that if they can switch over to EVs, they can help meet those goals even faster. And it isn't just the startups looking to capitalize on ambitious corporate transport sustainability goals. Established vehicle manufacturers are also having to face a future without the internal combustion engine. Martin Daum is CEO of Daimler Trucks and Buses and has been with the company for over 30 years. But as he admitted to Tom and Christiana, he wasn't entirely convinced the trucking business was ready for such a change. I, I never was against fighting climate change. The only issue is I could never imagine that in the truck world, yeah, that might come to play. Why? Because a zero emission truck is always more expensive than a diesel truck. Believe me, as, a, as someone who is really has worked his entire life in this industry, there is a reason why we run on diesel these days. Why? Because it's the most efficient way to burn uh, to create energy to propel then 40 tons forward or up a hill, which needs an incredible amount of energy. But why do, why, why did I change my behavior? I mean, the, the number one point was always it's too expensive. No customer would ever buy it. Uh, and that is still true, by the way, today, and we could potentially elaborate a little bit about that later. But there came another one is mm. I, there was always a talk about the Paris Climate Accord. And I ask various people, even out of the environmental uh, movements, and ask them always, what does Paris Accord mean? And nobody could explain it to me. And that is for a rational person, Mike, he <laughs> always enrages me. I said, hey, guys, this is this emotional. So we put a sticker on Paris is good and trucks are bad. And this is a world I don't like. Yeah. So then I started to research what Paris really means. And it means that if we want to stop the global climate change. We have to stop the increase of temperature. To stop that increase of temperature, we are not allowed to emit CO2 by 2050. And that got me. 
Yeah, because right. first of all, I know if our planet becomes inhabitable in in areas where millions, hundreds of millions of people live, it's not a pleasant place anymore. Yeah, because everything we see mm. these days is migration. Migration is small against what might happen if we have vast areas of the world uninhabitable. And we have to fight that. And for that, the Paris Accord is absolutely right. And if we don't emit CO2 by 2050, we shouldn't sell trucks by 2040. And 2040 is just around the corner in our industry. So we better start today and don't mm -hmm. waste another day. And that was about two years ago. And since then, we are pushing big time to get CO2-free by 2040. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that I joined the conversation when you were saying Paris is right. Uh, that was exactly <laughs> the moment for me to join the conversation. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, Martin, just a quick last question. Um, can this transition be done with the current level of fossil fuel subsidies? Subsidized fossil fuels is just a cheap, cheap source of energy. That's the entire problem. Uh, so in my opinion, we have to tax it more. We need. Uh, we have, for example, in Europe at the moment, in partly in Europe, uh, uh, NOx, nitrogen oxide-based uh, road toll that has to be, in my opinion, changed into a CO2-based road toll, where zero emission vehicles pay much less than uh, emit CO2-emitting vehicles. Um, we need higher. The best thing would be higher prices on on on, ga on gasoline and diesel. I tell you, if you really want Paris happening, if every politician in the world who signed that Paris Accord would tomorrow say every single January first there's ten cent more tax on diesel and gasoline from now to eternity, I tell you, by 2050, not a single person would drive a, a combustion engine car. We don't need any regulation. Yeah, uh, free market economy would push that, but no politician is saying that because he f he fears the kick and lash back uh, of his or her voters. And just a note, it was only days before we spoke to Martin that Daimler announced a joint venture with Volvo Trucks to develop and produce fuel cell systems for heavy-duty vehicles. The main argument by joining forces with Volvo is to give to the infrastructure industry Infrastructure, I mean here, H2 infrastructure. A big sign that the two biggest players in North America and in Europe are joining forces and really are serious about it and putting serious money behind our words. It's not just an announcement. We together vowed and, and, and signed contractually that we spend another huge triple-digit million amount in getting the fuel cell as fast as possible up and running. Yeah, and, and I would say this signal to the market that we are truly serious, and it's not just Daimler, it's not just one crazy CEO, this is serious, and it's serious from the two biggest players in the global trucking world. Now, someone who has literally been in the driving seat of many an electric car, bus and truck is Robert Llewellyn. He launched Digital Channel Fully Charged 10 years ago and has been road testing and reviewing the very latest e-vehicles ever since. 
Hello and welcome to uh, Fully Charged. This is a really exciting episode for me. I really wanted to hate the Model 3 because I didn't want to be a Tesla fanboy. But as soon as I sat in one, I went, damn, it's really good. It's better than anyone else's car. Damn, 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 I'm a Tesla fanboy. Anyway, let's get going. So what spiked Robert's interest way back, long ago in a world, even before Tesla? I used to make a, a regular TV show called Scrap Heap Challenge in the UK or Junkyard Wars in the United States. And it was through uh, the, my contact with a lot of engineers and people working in the automotive industry that gave me probably an early signal that something was happening. There were a lot of developments in software, in battery technology, in electric drivetrains that was going on very much under the radar. You know, it wasn't, uh, it, it, there was nothing sort of public going on. And I was hearing about this, particularly in the United States, particularly in California, was where that stuff was developed. And, it, and, and I didn't understand it, and I didn't think it was important. I wasn't like instantly converted, but it kind of stayed in me. And then you'd gradually hear things. And I heard about, in, in, uh, in the United States, the Californian Air Resource Board, the uh, EPA, doing research on what happens when children breathe an immense amount of toxic fumes coming out of millions of internal combustion engines, all that stuff, which is now blatantly obvious. But at the time, it was like, oh, really? I didn't know that was bad. <laughs> you know, because we were used to it. We'd all been born into a world where we sat in traffic jams with thousands of engines going, boom, 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 pumping out toxic carcinogenic gas you know and it was like that's normal but it, eventually I started to understand the battles and the 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 realities of whether an electric vehicle was viable because when I first heard about it and the first common examples we saw there was a car that was popular in London called the G Wiz which had about 35 miles range at about 40 miles an hour flat out. And it was basically a cardboard box with wheels and they weren't safe. It wasn't officially a car. You know, and you think, that's an electric car. I don't think that's going to catch on. <laughs> it's just a very unique sort of niche thing. But then gradually, the technology, you could see it evolving. And this is pre-Tesla. And then you sort of hear about Tesla. And I went to an event in London where they unveiled the Tesla Roadster. And someone introduced me to this man and they said, this is this is Elon Musk. And I went, oh, how do you do? And he said, how do you do? It's nice to meet you. That was the sum total of our conversation. I'd not heard of him. I didn't know who he was, you know. And then you go, then it starts to all click together. And you go, oh, my goodness, this is extraordinary. This is a big event. So that's really how it came about. And by that time, there were then some electric vehicles around, that, you know, that we could test like one or two. So a Tesla, got a Tesla Roadster for a weekend. They very generously lent me and uh, a Nissan Leaf, the kind of early versions of the Nissan Leaf, the Renault Zoe. And really, it kind of grew from that point. But I, it was always not just about cars. And that I picked that up pretty quickly and early on from engineers, not me working out, but engineers going, that's a battery on wheels that you could run your house on. And just now, at, right the other side of that screen behind me is a vehicle-to-grid unit that is, this is being run off my car at the moment. So, you know, that stuff can happen. And that, you then go, this isn't, we're not talking about new cars. This is a, nif a different technology we've never had before. It's a computer and a battery on wheels that you can ride around in, but it's much more useful when you're not riding around in it, which the cars we've all been used to, 
they're just lumps of stuff in the way when we're not using them, which is about 90% of the time. So we've got a system that doesn't work. So what we're proposing is a system that is more useful, less damaging, better. Okay, okay, okay. But how can the phasing out of the internal combustion engine be managed so that those who can't just go out and buy a new electric car won't be penalised? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the carrot should be massive and the stick should be very small. Because I think, I, I, you know, we're, the, the really bad example we have in this country, in the UK, is diesel is diesel cars. If you've got any memory and you're of the generation that remembers being encouraged to buy diesel, to be told five years later, you're driving the filthiest, most toxic vehicles the human race has ever produced, that's a real problem. So you've got to balance that encouragement, I think. And uh, you, what you want to show is you've got this diesel car. It's nothing to do with, you know, stupid. If Don't forget that the government encouraged you to buy it. Here's one over here. Have a go in it. It's electric and it's much better. But you choose yourself, you know. There's no longer an argument about which is the better technology. And that's what excites me, that I do these things, like drive a car, really complicated machinery. I haven't burnt anything to do it. It's fantastic. First time that human beings have done this without burning. I can heat my house without burning anything. I can cook food without burning anything. You know, really important changes. And when that change comes to a major sporting event, which for years has been a monument to the roaring noise of the internal combustion engine, you know there's no going back. We go green in Berlin. Pretty even start up at the front. Down towards turn one. And uh, immediately Buemi covers the inside. Rass tries to send it to the outside. Just listen to that. Rass to the outside and gets the job done. Could that be the future sound of silent motor racing? Christiana caught up with the founder and chair of Formula E, Alejandro Agag. Alejandro, muchas gracias. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, Outrage and Optimism. I want to take you back in history just a little bit uh, to your uh, original, let's call it, departure from Formula One. And you decided to do something completely different. Why? Well, uh, Cristiana, well, it's great talking to you. And I would love that the question, the, the, the answer to this question would be um, purely for environmental reasons. But uh, I have to say it wasn't. Um, it's not to say that I'm, I'm not worried about the environment. I've always been worried about the environment. When I was in the European Parliament, uh, I was, it was one of the topics I was focusing on. But when I was in Formula One, I was trying to convince a big corporation, a sponsor, to come into the sport. And they were almost there. But then at one point, and this is already 12 or 14 years ago, that company said, listen, we cannot go in. I said, well, why? And they said, because we don't want to associate with combustion. We need to change our mindset. We need to go to uh, clean sports. And I thought at the time, Formula One has got a problem. And I thought at the time, we should create a green version of the sport. We should, we should move in that direction. So the reason is mixed. Of course, I worry about the environment, but, but it wasn't purely, let's say, altruistic. Well, I would say uh, environmental care and commercial viability or profitability is a powerful combination. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, and, and I know you make this case very often, but I think if we really want to make big changes, not, not small changes, which are, of course, a lot of them added are, are important, but if we want to make big, big changes, you need an economic case for it and you need to make it, uh, you know, profitable. 
Uh, and I think that's that's the way to the, to go. But for that, you're going to need a lot of technology. I think technology is the one that can marry those two and make sustainability also profitable. So talk to us about the playground nature, the experimental nature, the gym gymnasium nature of your races as being the exciting sporting event that we all love, but also the very important opportunity to improve technology. Motorsport has always been, not only now, has always been a kind of a laboratory, a, a platform where you make the technology uh, uh, advances that then you can use on, on road cars. Even the rear view mirror was invented in a race. Formula E wants to be the platform and also Extreme E where car manufacturers can test the big advances on electric mobility and then use them on their road cars, making them better. What's better? Making them cheaper, making them go farther so the batteries is a, really the battlefront of, of electric car uh, evolution and, all those, and also making charge a lot faster. We are looking at ultra-fast charging in Formula A. We're experimenting with that. So imagine you can charge your electric car in five minutes. That will change completely the perception of people about electric cars. Or you can have an electric car that can go for a 1,000 miles. That will change. Those technologies are the ones that can come from motorsport to the road cars. And Alejandro, how quickly do you see the impact of the sporting event on the uptake of passenger EVs? Uh, in, in, in the public? That's a key question, and we've done research about it. We've asked the people exiting our events, are you closer today than yesterday to buying an electric car? 99% of the people said, yes, I'm closer. By seeing these cars on a racing way, on a racing format, something that was before only uh, reserved for big combustion cars, you take a big leap, you take a big step of changing the mindset of the people because Let's be honest, at the end, buying an electric car is a question of mindset. Alejandro, so there are many differences between Formula One and Formula E, but one very exciting difference is that because the electric race cars are not as loud uh, by far as Formula One cars, you can race in cities, in the middle of cities, which you cannot do with Formula One. Talk to us about that. That's absolutely true. We were negotiating with London, with the city of London, and the, the, the borough we wanted to raise in, uh, in Battersea Park said, listen, we have one condition. The noise is the big limitation for us. So we are going to open the park for you, the place where we're going to race, at four in the morning. We want you to bring a car there, and if anybody wakes up, we're not going to give you the permission to race. So we took a car at four in the morning to Battersea Park. We raised the car around the park at full speed. Like we had like, you know, of course security. So nobody would come into the park or anything. And nobody in the neighborhood woke up. And then they gave us the permission to race in London. So that tells you how, how uh, important the silence is to, to race in cities and how, how the future will be much better in cities with electric cars in terms of the noise that you hear all the time. Brilliant, I'm glad I asked you that. And talk to us now about Extreme E, Alejandro. This is one your your second big adventure in electrification of vehicles. Um, that is another frontier that you are hoping to uh, conquer. Extreme E is all about uh, going one step further on on what we started doing with Formula E. We want to take electric cars to the most remote corners of the planet that are affected by climate change to show what's going on there. There is a fact. More people watch sports than environment documentaries. 
And, you know, I was watching the, the fantastic uh, Attenborough documentary that was on Netflix the other day, but sports uh, beat that documentary hundredfold. So our idea is to use a sport to give a message, to take the sport where the problem is happening. Of course, we're not going to race in the middle of a beautiful forest, but we're going to showcase what's going on in the Arctic. We're going to race in a place that used to be covered by the ice cap. Now we can race there. It's just sand. What, what better expression of, of showing what's going on with the melting of the ice cap? So that is the big message around Xtreme And also to promote the technology for SUVs, which is, you know, now SUVs is the fastest growing segment in any kind of car. If the SUVs that are sold are electric, we will be doing a huge service to, you know, to reducing carbon emissions from transport. And finally, a tricky question, Alejandro, because you're still associated with Formula One. What is your sense of the future of Formula One? Formula One has two options. Formula One can become a historic race, a race of classic cars, a race of a technology that is not used anymore. Having said that, that exists with horse racing. We still race with horses, but we don't go to the office with a horse. Or the other option, which I think is the option for Formula One, is to become electric in the future. I think that is the future of Formula One if they want to stay as the pinnacle of motor racing. The thing is, I have an exclusive license for 25 years for electric racing worldwide, so I will have to somehow, we will have to come to some kind of agreement, but I think that is the future for Formula One. going to do incredibly well out of this 25-year e-franchise. It's like Formula One toast, you imagine. Petrol Formula One. Well, it's not toast yet because it's not uh, in the toaster, but it's basically sliced bread <laughs> about to go into the toaster. <laughs> Let's understand that these electric vehicles are much more than vehicles. They're basically batteries on wheels and that they will be connected to buildings energy supply. And when the building generates more solar power than it needs, then the excess energy will be stored in the battery of the electric car that is connected to the um, building. And then that energy can be discharged back into the grid whenever that is appropriate. So that the car battery or the car then acts as an energy storage source and as an emergency power supply. And this division between power for buildings or homes and power for transport will actually disappear because it will all be fluid and, um, and interchangeable. That cannot be done with an internal combustion engine. That is where that technology really, really meets its limits and where this other technology just goes exponential with the applications um, and the um, transformation in our quality of life and in the quality of the power system. Completely unparalleled, completely unparalleled to anything that we've seen before. Yeah. I thought the comments from Craig Knight from Heisen were amazing about the responsive nature of these systems and how you can deal with them. We will live to see the end of the internal combustion engine. What a fascinating uh, inquiry. Lovely to go deep with such smart people. And I guess that's a wrap and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Well done, Paul. Well yeah, done. Amazing. Smooth. Oh, you don't have Beautiful. to clap for me. <laughs> Thank you. It was a pleasure. Till next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. 
I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the second episode in our four-part series on the future of transport. We have two more episodes coming your way. So hit subscribe so that you don't miss them. Oh, and if you haven't checked out the first episode in this series, go back a few on your podcast app and check it out. It's titled The Future of Flight. Enjoy. Let's roll the credits. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mancilla-Germán, and this episode was produced by Clay Carnell and Catherine Hart. Global Optimism is a team. We are Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Our hosts are Tom Rivet-Karnak, Christiana Figueres, and the Paul Dickinson. Paul, great work on the VO for this episode. Skills. Thank you to our incredible guests this week. Martin Daum, Robert Llewellyn, Craig Knight, Monica Araya, Alejandro Agag, Mary Nichols, Ramez Nam, and Sarah Forney. Special thanks to the team at Neste, Peter Vanneker, Sana Helsted, Krista Lindell, Elena Lamintausta, and Mina Liang Sormunen. And a thank you to everyone who helped coordinate this week's interviews, making this episode possible. Here they are. Thank you to Troy Fuhrer, Uta Leitner, Dorothy Krabler, David Wu, Fraser Beatty, Warwick Hazeldean, Brian Brooks, Glenn Langridge, Mark Gordon, George Gu, Christina Grimm, Amaya Pagaldai, Sam Stibbs, Jessica Borrell, Stanley Young, Shannon Stewart, Virgil Welch, Troy Shein, and Sarah Schiamacco. And last but not least, thank you to TED Countdown, CNN, Fully Charged, and Formula E for the clips we played in this episode. Okay, let's wrap it up. So yeah, we're in the podcast world, but we're also in the social media world, keeping you up to date on the outrage and optimism in climate. You can find us at at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And speaking of LinkedIn, Tom just shared his thoughts on this episode, beginning a discussion on LinkedIn that you can join in on. Link to that in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and our podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks. And that's a wrap on episode two, The Future of Fuels. Next week, we have on a guest I have been looking forward to for a while now, British MP David Lammy. Before you tune in for next week's episode, I want you to go watch his recent TED Talk titled Climate Justice Can't Happen Without Racial Justice. Link in the show notes. You know what to do. Hit subscribe, watch David's TED Talk, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>